Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian at UConn Hartford and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. Say the name Wilbur Cross, and most Connecticans think of a parkway. Wilbur Cross the man, however, was a Connecticut of extraordinary accomplishment. Born and raised in the rural factory village of Gurleyville, near present-day stores, Cross grew up to be a world-class scholar who introduced English literature to the Yale curriculum, became founding dean of the Yale Graduate School, and then, at age 68, entered politics to become a beloved four-term governor guiding Connecticut through the worst years of the Great Depression. Our guest today is publisher David Wilk, whose City Point Publishing has just reissued Connecticut Yankee, an autobiography of Wilbur L. Cross, the fascinating story of Cross's life and career as written by a master storyteller, Cross himself. David and I met at the New Haven Museum recently to discuss this must-read book and the man who wrote it. David Wilk is a publishing polymath, poet, author, producer of the podcast Writer's Cast at writerscast.com, book publishing and marketing consultant, and the publisher of City Point Press in Westport. Today, he and I are together at the New Haven Museum to talk about one of City Point's newest releases, the reprint of a 1943 book titled Connecticut Yankee, an autobiography of Wilbur L. Cross. David, thanks for being here. Thank you, Walt. Thanks for having me. You know, I think it'd be safe to say that when most Connecticans hear the name Wilbur Cross today, they think of a parkway and not a person, right? So let me begin by asking you, who was (laughs) Wilbur L. Cross and why more than three quarters of a century after it was first published, did you decide it was time to reprint this book? Well, first of all, Wilbur Cross was a governor of the state of Connecticut. He he served four terms in the 1930s, which was a pretty important period in the history of Connecticut. But he was also a true Connecticut Yankee, as he calls himself, grew up in a small town in Connecticut in the 19th century, but really lived into this wonderful period of American history of the 20th century, where so much happened to change the world. He was a professor of English at Yale, and he was a dean. I mean, we can go into all of these things, but the reason I thought it was important was just because what you said. People only think of him as the name of of a highway or of the name of a school in New Haven. He was a really important guy in the history of Connecticut, and I don't think very many people really know who he was. It's actually kind of incredible, both how long he lived and how much he accomplished in so many different fields. That's one of the things that he talks about in the book at one point. This sort of stuck out for me. He was kind of looked at by other professors at Yale as he was, he worked too hard. They thought, how can you can't keep it up? You're not strong enough. You will fade away. And he did not. It is amazing. He seemed to have been a man of almost tireless energy, right? Which he attributes to taking a nap every afternoon. The period Cross writes about in his book covers an incredibly dynamic period in Connecticut history, from his birth in this little town of Gurleyville, a factory village near present-day stores, uh, and the University of Connecticut, born right in the middle of the Civil War, 
And he ends his book at the end of 1938, or actually the beginning of 1939, when Connecticut was still in the midst of the Great Depression and on the eve of the start of World War II. How well do you think Cross's story, as he tells it, shows us how much the world changed during his lifetime? Well, I think he, he does. I mean, first of all, it is very personal story. He tell this is his story. And it's if there's any criticism I would give him as a memoirist is that he is so um, personal. Now, that's also a benefit for readers, but it is really interesting because he talks about his world from the very beginning. And I think it is so amazing to think about Connecticut in the 1870s when he was a young man, a really young boy, going to school. His family was not well-to-do. These were just regular people, but, you know, not poor, but they were hardworking farmers. Uh, his his grandfather ran a grist mill and a sawmill, and his, his brother ran a store. And so Wilbur worked in the store when he was really young, and it brought him into contact with all the people in the local community. And it, you feel this sense of growing up, as he talks about it, uh, in, the, in a in milieu that is directly related to the pre-Revolutionary War period. And that's what I thought was so... One of the things about history that I really love is that if you read a story like this one, you can directly connect to a period that seems like ancient history to us, which is the 18th century. So Cross's... The people that he grew up with included people who were born before the Revolutionary War and remembered it. And then, and then, of course, people, he doesn't talk about this much, but the Civil War had just ended. Not that, you know, if you think it's like 10 years before he was a, a teenager. So all of that was part of his, uh, uh, the influence on him. And that's a 19th century life that he lived. As a state historian, one of the things I loved about this book is that he describes his family's history from back at the Pequot War, which is an Indian war at the very beginning of settlement. And it is a personal story. It's, It's his family, their lives through the Civil War and into very much the modern era. It It showed me how one life lived by an aware person can reach back a century and a half and reach forward. That's true, because we can read his story and we can feel connected to it. Now, I admit, I'm old enough to remember things that he talks about having happened in his late adulthood, you know, like the the hurricane of 1938, when I was growing up was something that people actually remembered and talked about. Um, I was born in 1951. I remember the hurricane of 1955. Right. And he was the governor during the hurricane of 1938 and the floods of 1936. Those were just sidebars of Right, you know. they were they were important events though for the entire state. I you know, I thought about that a lot in reading this book too. The difference in the way that information was passed. Um, he and we're doing this out of sequence, I know, but he, as a politician, traveled all over the state meeting people. And one of the reasons that he was a successful politician is that he practiced what we now call retail politics. He gave talks. He would there's one of the stories in the book about going to Salisbury, where Hotchka School is. He was invited by the the um, 
the principal, the headmaster of Hotchkiss School, to give a talk. And he didn't realize when he went there that he was going to be talking to a bunch of Republicans as well as Democrats. And he had to make up a, a talk on the spot. He did extemporaneous speaking. And, and I do think that the education that he received in classical uh, literature and at the very beginning of modern English literature being taught in college, he went to Yale, he was um, uh, taught in a different way than anybody today would ever imagine. 19th century pedagogy was very different. Uh, but I think it made him an incredible orator um, and, and a natural one. You know, I don't and think it, he was famous for his oratory, but he was very uh, capable of relating directly to the people in his audience in a human way, but also referencing things that they might not have even known about. Well, and it's one of the strengths of this book, I think, is that Cross is a great storyteller, and he either had a fabulous memory or he kept excellent notes because he recounts these stories and these speeches yeah. in great detail, and they are fascinating to read. They really right. are. He, ne he never mentions that he uh, keeping a diary, so I have to assume that he did this from memory, and that is striking because he does talk about and this goes back to his early youth, he remembers conversations that he had with his grandfather uh, or people in his community from when he was five and six years old, and he's telling this story when he's in his late 70s. So I think he probably did have a really good memory, and I suspect that one of the things that is different about modern life versus 19th century life is that there, because there were fewer distractions, they didn't have multimedia the way we do, they actually did have better memories. Sure, he they, relied on the theater of memory exactly. rather than on Dr. Google, as, yeah, the you know, oral, as I've learned how to right, do Right, the oral tradition was more powerful. They probably did more memorizing. In, so I know they did in school, um, and that stays with you. That training of the mind uh, is different, I think, for uh, very different from what we see today. And that's another thing that I think is valuable in reading this book, that you get to experience a 19th century form of learning that was then applied to a 20th century form of life. That's very interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way, but it, I, I can see, thinking about the book, that that's exactly what we're reading. And yeah. I mean, we're in a world now where the political tell-all or the political memoir is de rigueur for, you know, for the dog catcher when he retires. But this is different than the political autobiography of anyone I've ever read before, because it's it really is very well written. He is he he is a very good writer. I have to give him credit. I think that a big difference between him and the normal kind of political story you read is he wasn't a politician. He was a literature person. He was, you know, he wrote books about English literature. He introduced or helped to introduce the English novel into scholarly uh, conversation. He studied Lawrence Stern, he studied Fielding, he went to England. He was a professor of English. I mean, he actually also was, he was the second principal of Staples High School in Westport and then taught for five years in Pittsburgh at a Shady Grove school, then came back to Yale and was appointed as, a, as an instructor initially at Sheffield Scientific, which probably more history than most people want to know about Yale, but Sheffield Scientific existed in the 19th century 
and included uh, humanities as and well. And there was this divide in Yale, right, between yes. the scientific school and the Yale College. Right. And I get the sense that Sheffield was seemed as a lesser yeah, a lesser among equals. I, I think I, I don't know enough about that to say, but definitely the pedagogy of teaching English in a in a, a milieu of science it also was good for him. He was interested in knowledge. He admired and went to lectures by you know biologists and chemists. I mean, he was a really interesting person in the sense of his mind was very active. He doesn't really talk about that as a distinguishing trait, but I think he was a very smart guy with a broad intelligence who wanted to learn about the world. So he became an English professor fairly rapidly, uh, advanced and, you know, and established English as a subject of study, you know, helped to establish it at Yale. Because, because it, it had been primarily classical. And he's right. saying, you know, we ought to be reading these contemporary exactly. authors or the ones from the last century. And right. That's a very profound change. We take it for granted today, right. but that was very much something that crossed Push to have. Right. You know, he was part of this modern, I think you see him as being part of this modern period where advancements were happening. And they'd, he was sympathetic to the people who were older. He learned from them. He admired them and respected them. So he was not a firebrand, but he was very methodical in, in being part of this um, new wave, we'll call it, of educational methodology. And he introduced English, you know, or was one of the many people in America, but at Yale in particular, he's strongly involved in introducing English literature as a field of study. It became a department. Um, he then went on to become an administrator and was the first dean of graduate studies at Yale. They didn't have a graduate studies. They had a graduate program, but there was no formal school. This is another great accomplishment of Cross that he said, yes, let's create right. an independent graduate school, which most people told him, don't do. Why would you become dean of a school that's going to be inferior to the others? And he said, well, I, I don't think it will be. And he right. took the job. Right. Uh, and I think this is another area in which he learned practical politics. Academic politics are very challenging. Academics are really smart people, and it's no less political in a faculty or administrative environment than it is in the real world. In fact, it's maybe even more fraught because they torture every every decision with uh, uh, question and answer and want to make sure it's, that it's right. It's built into the disciplines. It's what right. people do. They are right. there to, to subject everything to rigorous inquiry. Yeah, to, exactly. Yeah. And I think that's the, the word is rigor. And, and I think that forces you as a, as a, if you're going to be successful, to learn how people operate. And I think he talks about that in the book. I think he had a natural... And he demonstrates uh, it. You see him yeah. it, it, as someone who, again, is inside an academic system. You see him working the politics exactly. of situations. He's, right. he's a smooth he very, operator. He was very good. He was good at managing up, obviously, but I think he also managed sideways and down really well. That's a, that's a great observation. It's true. And people who read this book, and I hope, I hope everybody listening to this will put this on the must-read list, 
because this there is just a world of insight in in chapter after chapter. No, I think that's book. true. Also, I have to say, for me personally, a lot of his storytelling is very it's compelling. You know that he there are these little little nuggets where he. You know, uh, uh, when I think it was President, no, it was uh, Professor Lounsbury died. This was a major figure in his life, a person who was very influential in uh, in Cross's life, influential on Yale. He died and comes to New Haven, former President Roosevelt, former President Taft, who are both at uh, uh, hating each other. And there's this effort to try to get them to shake hands and make up at the funeral. They're both pallbearers, and Taft comes off as this sympathetic character. He tries yeah. to shake hands with Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt basically blows him off, and that story is amazing. It is. I don't think any. I don't know whether it's told anywhere else. I don't know, but it's great to read it uh, firsthand from Cross, who was there. Um, also, he talks about you know he obviously met. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt and spent time with uh, people in the 1920s and 30s who are pretty prominent in our history. And that's, this is, it also shows you a different way that uh, politics worked, that the leveling was much, uh, there was less of a hierarchy so that the president of the United States could come to Connecticut and do some campaigning, which he did, I think it was in 19. 36. I think it was 36, which yeah. was the great landslide. Right, for, which is the yeah. year he beat Alf Landon, the uh, Kansas corn cornflower guy. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, but, you know, it's sort of just, it, it isn't made a big deal of, but he hung out with Franklin Roosevelt. One of the things that interested me about his relationship with Roosevelt, and, and in fact, his whole term as governor, he clearly in this book, comes off as a grassroots Connecticut-centric politician. Yes. His, his family roots are in Connecticut. He is, uh, when he's a boy, his father, his father insists that at any time his son Wilbur can tell him who the governor of Connecticut is, not the president of the United States, but the governor. And, and as Cross says, he says, I had an exalted position of what the governorship was, never thinking it would be me. I take his whole career to be, and especially when he enters politics, to have this sense of the importance of Connecticut as a political entity, a kind of self-serving political entity. Yet he is governor during the period in the United States when a state alone can't handle the crisis of the Depression. And all over the country, there's this transition of power from retail state politics to federal intervention in and ultimate control of a whole lot of programs. Cross is governor during the period when this transition is happening, and he's a very unlikely person to handle that well, given his prior experience, but he does it wonderfully. Well, I think Part of, I think there are two reasons. I don't really know. I'm not an expert in this, but I, I think reading his book, you get the feeling that he was really good at understanding Connecticut politics. He really knew the state. He knew, he knew all of the people in a in a personal way he and he he talks a little bit about this. You know, they didn't have polling, yeah. so he would go out into the state 
and take essentially take the temperature. He was sort of measuring semi-scientifically. He did that a lot, didn't yeah. he? he? When he had a question about what was going to happen in a campaign, he'd go he'd go do yeah. a walkabout. And he would he would sort of look at he'd kind of get a feel for what was going to happen and then estimate how many votes he thought he needed. Um, you know, and it was, I, I know the state was smaller. I mean, it was a much different environment than it is today, but some of the same dynamics that we face today were in place then. I think that's something that's worth noting. Uh, Connecticut had been uh, at, at a prior, he was elected in 1932 or 31, to serve in 32. The 15 years prior to that was all Republican. The Republicans basically, it was a machine. They owned, they they had the both chambers, the governorship, and they had appointed uh, every judge. Uh, and, and when when Cross gets elected, he is the only exactly. Democrat in a constitutional state office. So that's right. this Republican machine led by one of the few people in the book that you get the feeling Cross really didn't like. The famous Henry the Hen- Rohrbeck. Henry J. Rohrbeck, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and so, you know, I thought, wow, he's now the governor. And you get the feeling pretty quickly that the only person in 1931 in power in Connecticut who thinks Cross is the governor is Cross, <laughs> right? It's true. I think his first two terms were very difficult. He navigated really well, though. I think when he points out, and I think this is a big issue, that at that time, I think there's a level of corruption, that when whoever was in power appointed their friends, essentially, to um, these state jobs, basically. So there was a form of patronage going on, and that was one of the ways that they were able to control the politics. Patronage uh, seems to be the the real currency of retail politics in Connecticut. Yeah. As, as Cross yeah. tells it, what people are most interested in isn't policy, it's how many judges can they appoint, That's how right. many sheriffs can they... Right, and how many administrative jobs can they fill, you know, at the head of whatever department it was. So, it, you know, he served for four terms. It wasn't really until 19... Uh, and each term is two years. Two-year so terms. Was, yeah. And one of the things he points out was that before him, being governor was a part-time job. He's the first governor who made it a full-time job. That's significant. And I that's think. built into his character, yeah. I think. Well, he, he also, I think he recognized that the modern world did not allow for a part-time governor, uh, especially well, during the Depression. Well, it certainly didn't during the Depression. Right. And the, he, one of the things he wants to do is modernize the state government to bring it into uh, alignment with more modern principles of governance and management. He does accomplish that. But it isn't until he's able to get a majority in both chambers that he's able to really do the things that he wants to do. But before that, he does manage the circumstance. And there's another factor that I think is probably going to be new for readers to understand how powerful the Socialist Party was in Connecticut. This is really important, and it's really significant. Bridgeport, in particular, was a hotbed of of socialist uh, um, of the Socialist Party. The mayor was a socialist in Bridgeport. There's a lot of things that uh, that that had a huge impact because, in a weird way, the Republicans and the Socialists aligned themselves against the Democrats. That that was. Baffling to me that Jasper McLevy, who is yeah. the, the mayor of Bridgeport, has this socialist base. They don't have much power, but I think they, if I recall correctly, 
1934, 36, they elected three socialist senators. State senators. State senators, yes. yes. And that was the swing vote in the Senate. So Cross is thinking there's a natural affinity between his kind of progressive democratic politics and the socialists, yet in this in this play for patronage world, right. he is sorely mistaken. Oh, yeah. He? I mean, it's like a knife in the back. Yeah, the socialists um, line up, <laughs> align with the Republicans. Right, to, to thwart the Democrats. And, of course, in the end, in 1938, he loses that election primarily because the socialists were so strong. They were actually stronger in 1938. That might have been their high-water mark. Um, And in the statewide election for governor, he lost because the socialists took so many votes. Yeah, let's let's hold 1938 (laughs) for a little bit because that's a a turn in the narrative for Cross his whole life. But 36 is his high point. As you said, his first two terms in office, he's really an odd man out in political circles. He he implies, and in times he actually asserts, that there was a Democratic old guard yes. that resisted him as much as the Republicans, and he, he thinks that at several times this old Democratic guard colluded with the Republicans in actual agreement not to pass legislation that Cross and his other Democratic supporters wanted to pass because the old Democrat guard didn't like him and the old Republican guard didn't like him. And he, he was really on his own. I mean, he was, a, he was a progressive Democratic governor in a state resisted by his, his opposing party, elements of his own party, and then the socialists come up and they resist him too. You would think a guy like that couldn't get through one term in office, but he made it through four. How'd that happen? Well, I think, I'm not positive I understand, and I'm not sure he even reveals all of it overtly, but I think a lot of it is this whole sense of his retail politicianship. Um, He was really good at... um, he understood the attacks on him that were going to happen. He actually talks about having intelligence about some of the attacks. And he really thought through how he would uh, 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 fend off those attacks. So he was really good at that. I think the um, he had supporters in the media. I think the Hartford Current actually really did support him. Uh, and that was more, it, newspapers were much more influential in the 1930s yeah. than they are today, obviously. Um, I think he had the press. I think he had strong support from the people of all kinds, conservatives, old people, young people. Um, I think the Yale connections helped him because there were so many Yale alumni in government uh, there were times when he needed to ask for uh, uh, favors or to get something through. I think even though he was opposed by the Republican old guard, there were elements of the Republican new guard themselves. So he kind of found support where he could across party lines. Well, his decision to run for governor took place at the Yale Graduate Club, right? That's right. That, and it was a group of Yale graduates, some pretty heavy hitters, including the uh, Supreme Court Justice Maltby, who said, well, why don't you run? Right. And, you know, presumably they also became a support base for him. And 
you can't look hard at the Wilbur Cross administration without seeing the Yale club tie somewhere in the background. It's, that is true. And I think Yale helped. I think also the fact that um, Roosevelt was so powerful and so uh, respected and drew so much support, even though Connecticut was still a Republican state in many, many ways and was not like some of the other states which went all in for Roosevelt. I think there was a little bit of coattailing for um, uh, for Cross in some of it, like particularly Certainly in the 36, 36 election. No question. Yeah. Uh, that was a landslide election for the Democrats because they were, they were doing well and, and they, it was recognized that they were saving the country. Um, and the mini depression of 1937 had not happened yet. Um, and, and it, it is, it is clear that in, uh, 32 and 34, Cross was the chief executive of a minority government, but in 36, they swept the table. The, right. And then the he Democrats was able had, to accomplish a lot of things. Well, he did in a whole term. government reorganization then yes. that he had been trying to do since he got into office to, to fend off some of this patronage-oriented policy right. that was very expensive, even in the Depression. Right, and to also make the... Um, to make the uh, gov the state government more rational and less dependent on older organizational structures, and you know, and of course we shouldn't forget that it, when he came in, one of the big issues was prohibition, and he was he was a wet. Although he was, you know, it was a very complicated situation. I don't even fully understand all of the different tendencies. Yeah, that I think were going I think on. at one place he talked, he debates whether he should be a dry wet or right. a wet dry. Right, right. It's like this was obviously a big deal in the 1920s and 30s that we don't really fully um, grapple with or understand today the nuances of of that. And uh, but clearly. The um, prohibition, the end of prohibition was important. Um, it wasn't something that, and he also uh, was involved in the, you know, kind of rebuilding the um, uh, the administrative structure around uh, consumption of alcohol, because if you're going to re-legalize it, you have to also kind of reinvent all of your um, uh, government controls. Well, and this was, you know, this was like opening up the piggy bank for patronage people. That's true. They're gonna they're gonna get rid of prohibition. Who's gonna issue licenses? And this this that was seems to have been at the heart of this political battle over yeah. how and Cross won that one in the end. Which That's was, true. But he, you know, clearly he was not always. Uh, he wasn't. He was well liked in general, but I'm sure he had his enemies. Not just Rohrbeck, who, by the way, you know, didn't. Uh, he uh, Rohrbeck apparently got ill and committed suicide at one stage, but I think there were probably plenty of other people who did not. Oh, like, indeed, sure. Not, and it, one of the other things that Cross did. Um, this was a period of labor unrest, um, and I think in Connecticut. During uh, sit-down strikes, for example, uh, Cross took a pretty firm position that um, you you could not trespass. You have every right to protest. You have every right to strike, but you cannot sit down in your workplace and trespass on the property of the owners. That's a fairly uh, traditional, old-fashioned position to take, but it was consistent. He maintained that position throughout, um, and even though... It, it put him in conflict with the CIO. I don't think that labor 
uh, was opposed to cross. But there's certainly, there. you know, this is, I think, goes to the Socialist Party not liking him. I think he was not seen, even though he was... a pro-labor guy, but he he wasn't seen as an anti-labor Right, he was progressive, but he was a kind of -of middle-of-the-road guy, Um, you know, a practical person. There is this moment in the 1934 textile strike, which is a strike of textile workers across the state. It's concentrated in the northeastern part of Connecticut and Putnam and Willimantic and uh, places where there were big mills. And he went up to New Hampshire, I guess, in summer to close up his cottage. Right. Now he has a lieutenant governor who's a Republican. And he tells his staff, I'm going up to New Hampshire. If anything happens, call me. I can get home in six hours and we'll take care of it. So trouble breaks out in this strike while he's up in New Hampshire. Before he can get back to Hartford, the lieutenant governor has mobilized the National Guard, sent it into the mills, and stirred up a hornet's nest. Right. This was not good for Cross. Yeah. And and I think that ended up hurting Cross. And you really, it, it shows, I think, the degree to which his enemies were willing to use whatever tools they could get to get back yeah. at him. I think that's true. I think in that way, politics was rough and tumble then, probably it is still today. Um, I think he played it pretty well as a politician, but there's no no, no, no disputing that he, um, he took some flack, whether well, you know, depends on what your position is, whether it was well-deserved or not. Um, he, I'm sure he was not perfect, and in He's not a self-reflective guy. I mean, it, you know, it's, this is not a psychological uh, self-study. So, you know, that's one of the things you see about Cross in this book. You're not, a, you can't expect a modern kind of um, uh, steeped uh, a story that is steeped in kind of personal uh, thoughtfulness. He, you know, he was even he was a thinker, but he wasn't. Oh, it was it wasn't thinking it, he's a lot. He's a Yankee. He is yeah. not. I mean. It, he he talks about his wife only slightly, says she was the love of my life when she died. It was the greatest <laughs> loss of my experience. Other than that, we hardly know anything about her. Right, or his children, right. whom he loved dearly. And and I think, to me, that is the, you know, that's something that's kind of embedded in New England identity, this yeah. idea that your personal life is something set apart. And that's right. And you can be public and accessible and personable, but there are areas that just aren't open for right. others. There's but, only one time in the book that I can think of where he talked about his personal sense of being, and that is as a young man when his father died. I think he was about 14 when his father died. He, 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 met, he says specifically, I remember the day that my father died the last time I saw him. He recounts that story. And then really kind of subtly in the next year, things are not going so well. And he admits that he was in a sort of depression. Yeah, And yeah. that's the only time in the entire book that you can really look at him being um, revealing of his true feeling. It's true. He And I guess, the as I recall the story, his father went off to the mill and said, I'll see you this afternoon. Right. And then they called from the mill and they said, your father's down. He ran up there and he was dying. He and, or, yeah. And, yeah. And I, I think that you're, what you, you said a minute ago, I think is really accurate. I think that's a very 19th century 
uh, pre-Freud, pre-psychology um, sensibility. Yeah. That he grew up in the 1860s, 1870s. He came of age in the 1880s and 1890s. Freud didn't exist. Yeah. Our sense of the world is so defined by psych the psychology of trying to understand human beings in their feelings and emotions. And uh, I think in the 19th century, I know they had feelings. I know they had psychology. I know they had emotional lives. But as you said, it was very much not talked about. They didn't let it hang out. From our friends at Litchfield Historical Society, join us on November 15th for a symposium on the life and legacy of the Litchfield Female Academy. This one-day symposium will round out a two-year celebration of a progressive educational institution that instructed over 3,000 young women between 1792 and 1833. For tickets and more information, visit litchfieldhistoricalsociety.org backslash symposium. And to hear more about Litchfield and the Female Academy and the Law School, listen to my podcast number 47, How We Learned, Loved, and Mourned on Grading the Nutmeg. Justin Zarembi, in his terrific introduction to this book, describes Cross as a man mired in nostalgia for the simple life of his of his childhood and the concept of the Yankee spirit. And that, as Zarembi describes it, is key to understanding Cross. But it's also a complicated figure, innovative yet conservative, practical but idealistic, committed to education through and through, and an anachronism. And even in Cross's times, Connecticut was far more diverse than the world that he represented. Do you think that's that that gets at the essential? I do. I, I the only word I would object to that J Justin used, I think, is mired. You know, I think that um, Cross came from that um, that that world, and that's. I think it's what shaped him. I think he had a pretty. So it was steeped in. I'd say steeped. Yeah. Um, you know, it, one he talks about going to England. You know, I think one of the things he recognized. There's a quote in there. I can't remember who who it's from. But as you know, as a young person, you experience travel, and as an old person, or as a young person, you learn from travel. As an old person, you experience it. He needed to go to England, and he went to where the Brontes were, you know, he did the kind, it's great. And he talked about going to Hawaii uh, and spending time at the Bishop Museum there. He actually is the person who's responsible for the Bishop Museum being connected to Yale, um, which I think is a really important. That's really interesting. That is an important I would have thought it would be Hiram Bingham. Yeah, well, third, Bingham, right? well, Bingham, the old, old Bingham had been the original. The original one of missionary, the sure. Yes. Um, but I, what I love about Cross, even though he is, it's hard to imagine his youth and being so involved with that world that he uh, describes. Um, I think it's powerful and in, in that it shaped his worldview and allowed him to grapple with the modern world and not re not reject it. Because we have this idea that if you grow up in a rural environment or you, and you you treasure the simpler life of uh, uh, rural life, 
or simpler aspects of rural life, that you're somehow going to be anti-progress, that you're going... Anti-intellectual, anti right? Uh, yeah. Right, and that, that anything that is change is bad. And here's someone who grows up in that world and embraces change, embraces the modern world, but recognizes that not everything about it is perfect. What is amazing to me is that he could present himself believably and simultaneously as a person from both worlds at the same time. Yes. He could be Uncle Toby, the Connecticut farm boy, right. and quote Chaucer at his inauguration, and everyone would love him. That's it, right. Yeah, no, it is true. He, he, uh, he's a Yale professor, really erudite and well, really knowledgeable. Well, well he and, founded the Yale Review, right? That's Was right. That, uh, well, he founded the Yale, the modern Yale Review. He, he, the Yale Review had existed. That's but, right. It was dying and he took he it over. He made it, it, made it a real uh, intellectual um, uh, journal. And you know, so he's a very, you know, he's very well read. He quotes all the time, just as a matter of course, he's quoting things that his listeners sometimes didn't recognize. There's one story where he made, he, he had a, a reference in one of his talks and no one could figure out where he got it from. He said it was from the Bible and he showed them the chapter and verse. He was very well read, but as you said, he was capable of relating to an average regular person and he didn't take his knowledge and beat you over the head with it. He wasn't trying to prove how smart he was. He just was a smart, well-read guy. Um, what is also interesting, I think, is and we don't really know how he related to working class people, people of color. Um, it's not clear. I mean, he doesn't really talk about it. He really does seem to live in a very white world. Doesn't it is white. Yeah. And it is male for the yeah. most part, although I we give him and his period credit, because during the 1930s, I didn't know this, women were not allowed to serve on juries. Well, I have to, I have to tell you something. Reading between the lines and watching this, he had, as, uh, as one of the three chairmen of his campaigns in 34 and 36, Fanny Dixon Welsh, who was both right. a very powerful and activist uh, uh, Democratic Party person, but also a suffragist and very much a woman's rights activist in the sense that you could be in the 20s and 30s. Right. And reading between the lines, it's pretty easy for me to see him as a progressive supporter of women's issues, but the color you know, the other forms of diversity right. just seem to be off his radar screen. Right. He does not have a strong, uh, there, there isn't, there isn't anything in the book to suggest that he was a civil rights advocate, but there's nothing to suggest that he was a civil rights opponent. You know, I, I'm thinking out loud, he does talk about dealing with the issue of the Ku Klux Klan, which was a very big anti- Irish anti-immigrant and anti-Catholic organization in Connecticut in the 20s and 30s. That's so, true. But that's the only place where he talks about right. it. So, but he doesn't. He doesn't really condemn the Klan in any overt way, and that I noticed that. Um, yeah. I, I took that as, you know, something that people we don't really realize how strong the Klan was and how much 
racism and anti-Semitism uh, and anti-immigrant uh, sentiment there was. I know in Connecticut, certainly there was. Oh, in the 20s, there were marches both in Fairfield County and in uh, eastern Connecticut that drew 10, 15,000 people for one yeah. march. So Yeah, so it was a thing. Uh, but I, d I did notice, and I think he took great pleasure in being uh, responsible for uh, women being able to serve on juries. Indeed. Which is, you know, that's uh, it's surprising that 14 or 15 years after uh, the 19th Amendment passes, women right. still can't serve on a jury. That's right. And he, he actively pushed for and right. attained that, which that's is right. a big step forward. Uh, the reorganization of government, which people can read about in the book, in many ways, I think, began the process that created the state government as we have it today, or largely like we have it today. And it was part of this adaptation to uh, the need for a government that could handle bigger issues than town governments and even state governments could handle. So a government that could interface well with the federal government. But he, 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 at his moment of triumph, this is after 1936, when uh, with, with Roosevelt's help, the, you know, he has a huge election victory, the Democrats sweep in, and then disaster hits, right? What happens that leads to his defeat in 1938? Well, there, there's one underlying factor that I think is legitimate even at that point, he was by then 76 years old. Yeah. And I think there was a sense that, um, you know, even though he's a vigorous man uh, and fully capable of serving, I think there was some uh, underlying feeling there about his age. But what really, the big problem, there are two things that happen. One is there's a huge scandal in the um, uh, highway department relating to the acquisition of land for the Merritt Parkway, which was being built throughout the 30s. Um, part of it was opened during his administration, um, but there was corruption. And there were, it was a really um, clever scheme that was put in place. We don't need to go into all of the details, but there were a couple of people involved who were um, uh, profiting from the purchase of land, essentially, and this was a big, this was a really big scandal that landed at his doorstep because it happened in his administration. The other one that was a big problem for him was a scandal, a corruption scandal in Waterbury, uh, which did not help him in the least, and he was definitely tarred with that one as well because. Um, there were Democrats that he did not um, reject who were uh, who were clearly uh, corrupt. So and the tentacles of the Waterbury corruption scheme spread to Hartford in exactly. pretty deep through, ways, and through his um, his lieutenant governor, who was a Democrat from Waterbury. Um, so it, it that was bad, and I think he would be blamed for it. Regardless of what era you were in, when when a scandal of that measure, two of them happened during your administration, I think that's in in normal times, perhaps not today, but in normal times, you would be um, tarred with that with that brush. And it's pretty amazing that he he at least as he tells the story, had it not been for the socialists, he thinks he would have won the election. He, but yeah, he thought he could. I mean, I think that. 
the the um, the the scandals were a factor, but the other factor is the strength of the socialists. Um, I think he said that if um, they exceeded more than fifty thousand votes, he was doomed. And the socialists got one hundred and sixty thousand votes, and he still came within, I think, five thousand votes of winning. So he wasn't totally wrong about that. It's hard to know, hindsight yeah. being what it is. Why did the socialists get so many votes if you were so popular? So there has to be some uh, uh, concern about Clearly, he, he was tarred with these scandals, and yeah. he, he couldn't get away from it. And he tried, I think, on two more occasions after he ends the book with with stepping yes. with turning over the office in right. 1939 but he does he lives another 10 years or 8 years and um he i think wanted to be governor again and then he tried to be senator tried to be senator and in both cases it didn't work right. so he you know he i think you are right that uh for many people in the state he had passed his best by date right and and, and maybe i think that Again, this is a little bit of reading between the lines, but by 1938, I think the state had significantly changed and that um, it was time for uh, fresher ideas and new blood, even though the Republican who beat him in 1938, I don't think would be seen as a progressive or anything, but I think they were, you know, the, the uh, state states tend to go in cycles. And well, they, yeah. Right. And and Raymond Baldwin, who succeeded him, unfortunately, was uh, I think he was one of the one of the people that you can tell in this book that Cross didn't like from the very beginning when yeah. he, his first term in office. Raymond Baldwin is <laughs> proposing legislation against what Cross wants right. to do. And the only other person who comes off really negatively, and I'm I'm very intrigued by it is Robert Hurley, who was the, uh, I think, attorney general who was investigating mm. the, um, the Merritt Parkway scandal. And he issued a 60,000-word report, Cross said, that uh, as Cross analyzes it, he, he essentially says Hurley it doctored the images that he used in his report extensively to make to make it not only seem that there had been financial corruption in right. buying the parkway but that it was built with inferior engineering right. and that what i found most fascinating about this section because cross really talks about the use of images in the merritt parkway scandal by defenders of the parkway and opponents of it and just how much even in the 30s, the power of visuals to dominate a narrative are playing out in this huge governmental scandal. No, that's that, true. The pictures of the bridges and the, yeah. like the uh, sort of making it look like there was a crack. Yeah, they, um, they, you know, they would they would arrange the perspective of shots so that things looked terrible when you actually went there. No problem. Right. And those bridges did not fall. And the parkway was safe for the travelers of that time. And one of the great ironies is that at the end of the day, the Merritt Parkway as a parkway ends and connects directly to what? The, the Wilbur Cross. Cross Parkway that takes it into eastern Connecticut. That's right. I, um, I, I wonder whose delicious idea that was. <laughs> So what do you make of Wilbur Cross, both as person and governor? You, you, 
You must have some strong feelings about him because you decided to republish his book. Well, I I don't know. I I don't know. That's really a hard question to answer. I think I think he's an important figure. I think it's hard to know more about him than the book allows us. And as we talked about, he does draw a very careful line around what he's willing to talk about. Um, but I really, I like him as, um, uh, I think I like him a lot as a scholar, as an educator, as a, uh, as a politician. I think he's very likable. And I think he's, I think what we talk, again what we talked about as uh, emblematic of this cr- period of American modernization and modernism um where it you he crosses over these periods he c- clearly is a 19th century person living in the 20th century I think that makes him really interesting that tension you know the friction is always what makes things interesting and he doesn't reveal a lot about his feelings, but he does tell a lot about what his environment was and the people that it's he, true. he was with. So he's, a, and he's, as we you mentioned earlier, he's a really good storyteller. Yeah. So he keeps you engaged throughout. He's telling stories all the time, not just anecdotes, but real stories about what happened. So I like him as a storyteller. Um, it's, I think as a politician, I think what is interesting to me is how similar his political life was to what political life is today. And that I think that's important to remember that the past is, you know, is prologue. And right. we don't really understand how thoroughly similar we are as human beings to our forebears. You know, we're not that different. Um, we're still human beings. We have a different environment, but we still act like people. And I think that reading um, Wilbur Cross makes him sympathetic to us in that way significantly. Um, I can't gauge whether he was a good governor or not. Sure. I have no way to even make that, even think about that. But I think he's uh, an important figure. And and also the 1930s to me is a really, really crucial period of American history. So I like having this story of Connecticut to reveal to us something different about how we look at the world of that period. Um, Cause I'm used, you know, we're used to reading historians writing about the, the big changes that happened in the 1930s um, and 1940s that subsequently World War II massively yeah. dislocated all of this, the entire world that he talks about in the night in this book is actually gone on some level by 1955. Absolutely. Really interesting to think about that. But to me, it's really interesting to see on a local level on our, where we live, what happened in this momentous period. And he's a great person to tell that story yeah. because he was, because he was a scholar and a scholar of literature, he was a fine writer, and it comes through in this Well, that book. is really, and that's another thing that I think, I'm glad you brought it up. He is a really good writer. And people should, if even if you don't read this book, find his proclamations. They are works of art. Nobody, no other governor that I know of in the, in the United States has ever written proclamations of the, um, that are as moving and powerful 
as the ones that, that um, Cross did. So if he's remembered for nothing else, his proclamations are just wonderful. Well, you know what I'm going to do? I, I think that brings us to a great place to end this podcast. And I thank you so much for doing this. I think people are going to love this book. And I hope many, many people will read it and tell friends about it. It is a, it illuminates the Great Depression in Connecticut, I think, as only a story by the man at the top could do it. But what I'm also going to ask you to do, and we'll, we'll add this as a a bonus episode onto this. I'm going to ask you, we're coming up on Thanksgiving, right? So I'm going to ask you to read either part of the 1936 or 1938 Thanksgiving proclamation for which Wilbur Cross is almost as famous as his parkway. David Wilk, thank you so much. Thank you, Walt. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank David Wilk, City Point Publishing, the New Haven Museum, and its executive director, Margaret Ann Tokarczewski. Order the new release of Connecticut Yankee, an autobiography of Wilbur L. Cross, on Amazon.com, or ask your local bookseller or library to reserve you a copy. And for more great Connecticut history stories, read and subscribe to Connecticut Explored magazine at ctexplored.org. Listen and or subscribe to Grading the Nutmeg at gradingthenutmeg.libsyn.com or on your favorite podcast app. This is Walt Woodward, hoping you'll join us again next time for another episode of Grading the Nutmeg.